Howdy Partners, and welcome to another episode of the Howdy Partners podcast, where we give you tactical insights that you can deploy in your job so that you can be successful within partnerships. We're joined with Chris Lavoie today, the legendary. Um, so Chris, tell us about who you are, what you're working on, and uh, then we'll dive into things. Uh, first things first, thrilled to to be here today with, with you fellas. I um, always enjoy our conversation, so thanks for having me. So yeah, so Chris Lavoie here, um, based in Toronto, Ontario. Um, I'm in the the ecosystem strategy and training space. Um, so really, that that focuses on supporting B2B SaaS companies, advising them on their their strategy of how, how do they go to market. Particular emphasis on technology partnerships, which is a big focus of what we're going to discuss today. And then the other piece that I'm really passionate about is training. So I, I focused a lot in 2023 on you know, understanding where are the gaps uh, that exist within SaaS companies with respect to the training that they offer to their, uh, you know, partner managers, the ICs in partnership roles. And it was pretty alarming to see how how large those gaps are. And so that's a big focus for me right now is is working with program leaders, managers, directors, VPs on how to implement some V1 training program for onboarding and ongoing training. But uh, more importantly, working directly with those ICs themselves so I have a few initiatives that I've been working on that uh, cater to that, helping them prepare for a role that um, really many of us just fell into, and there's not much in the way of, of robust training available. I love it. And uh, in 2022, behind the scenes a little bit, you and I were, were working on a full course for this. So we definitely have some some history, and I, I love to see that you are living through it in that educational piece. Um, and you know, I've, I've taken my path into more of the media and content and whatnot. Uh, but that still really holds true to something that aligns with me. And I think that's why uh, we vibed so well when we would meet up and riff on these things. So I'm excited that uh, that you're seeing success in it and you're continuing to put out that good into the world. So our topic today is tech partnerships and how to monetize them. The integration partnerships, an app marketplace strategy, everything from sourced, influenced, and, and rev share we're going to dive into today. So Chris, my first question is, what do most get wrong about monetizing tech partnerships? They you know, may think about rev share is most important, or you know, I need to get leads, and uh, I think it can lead to bad habits, but what do you think most get wrong about monetizing tech partnerships? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. I think to preface it, I I know a lot of program leaders, C-suites, where they're like, how is it possible that our technology partner program is so unproductive relative to, say, our channel, our agency program? Given that, you know, tech partners, the huge advantage they present is this giant TAM, right? So your average tech partner is going to have, you know, 10x, 100x, potentially 1,000x the a number of prospective qualified customers for your business as opposed to, say, um, a boutique agency uh, that maybe does uh, digital marketing design. So it's, it's frustrating for a lot of company leaders that their tech partner program isn't as productive as, as it should be. And so to answer your question directly of what many get wrong is I think it comes down to picking the partners that you're going to prioritize. And with that, I believe a huge mistake I see is program leaders, partner managers, confusing TAM Tar, you know, total addressable market with SOM, which is the serviceable, obtainable market. And to break that down, 
you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to, you know, be mesmerized when you, you know, log into Crossbeam or Reveal and you look at the account overlap data with some of your larger tech partners and you're just like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be rich, right? Because they have so many seemingly qualified customers, right? And that's the TAM, that's the total market you could capture if you were to bring on all of those customers. But that is, you know, that is far-fetched to, to only focus on that number. And so what you see t- happen too often is, is, is companies and program leaders and partner managers are using that metric, sometimes that metric alone, in order to decide which partners to prioritize, which is, of course, a flawed approach because it says nothing about your ability to capture those, those customers, that, that market, right? So that's why something like a SOM, service, a serviceable obtainable market, is a much more um, important metric to look at, which factors in things like, okay, sure, a partner, this partner company presents a large TAM to us, but you know, are they selling to a similar buyer persona, right? So potentially your partner is selling to CMOs and VPs of marketing, but you're actually selling to chief operating officers and, and, and logistics managers, right? So that's already going to chip away at the TAM that's available for you because it's going to be difficult to sell and say co-selling and, and ABM style campaigns. Um, another important consideration in determining SOM is, you know, what's the pool of sellers at your tech partner organization? Uh, me and Will have talked a lot about this. I call it the ideal refer profile or IRP, meaning customer facing employees, right? So potentially a, a, a partner who is presenting this large TAM, they in fact only have a handful of account executives or customer success managers. And these are people who are actually going to be referring you business. And so if they don't have that many reps to work with, that again is going to really put a dent in that TAM that you can capture. Whereas, you know, one partner might present a smaller overall TAM, but they sell to the same buyers that we do. They have a crap ton of AEs and CSMs that I can work with. Um, they have a mature partner program and are willing to reciprocate and and see us as a big, you know, opportunity, just like we see them as an opportunity. So this soliloquy is to say that what I see most partners get wrong is they're lazy in their assessment of who is a priority and they're looking too much just at this gross TAM number and they're not actually thinking enough about what's their ability to capture that market. And that includes factoring in a lot of the considerations I mentioned, but also auditing their own existing resources, right? Flipping your own coach cushions and saying, do I even actually have the tools and ammunition to go get that market? So that's, uh, that's where I'd start. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpick there, and a lot of like really, really great info. And so, I think the SOM definition is a phenomenal one. And so, Chris, like from a tactical perspective, if you've got a partner manager, are you doing that SOM analysis when you're recruiting a partner? Like, whereabouts in that process does that kind of evaluation happen, in your opinion? Yeah, great question. So I'll, I'll answer in two parts. So if if you're in the business of taking on net new partners, this is something that I'm looking at very early on in my discovery phase. Because something I'll also talk about later on is in terms of trends is programs need to completely redefine and shrink their definition of who is an actual partner because you just can't afford to be working with as many partners as you, you have been. So to that point, if you're in the, the discovery phase, you know, first things first, you just want to make sure they're qualified. Like, are, you know, is there a need? Potentially uh, an integration has been requested. That's a good starting point. Um, you're, you're crossing your, your T's, dotting your I's, but then you need to ask these really important questions, right? So okay, I'll start with analyzing TAM. And if that's sufficiently high, typically 10X, whatever my annual goal is, I'll, I'll move forward. But then as quickly as I can, 
I'm stack ranking them based on something like the SOM. And you might be a qualified partner, but you have a small SOM, a small realistic opportunity. So potentially I'll put you into a non-managed bucket that will nurture and an onboard and a low touch, no touch sequence versus another partner who presents a large SOM. I'm going to put you in a managed strategic bucket where it's like, we are going to place a specific goal on you and we're going to try to activate you as fast as possible. Yeah. I love that. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's so much. And is that, so that you mentioned a couple of factors that kind of feed into that, that song, right? You mentioned partner team, you mentioned ICP. Does, does either one of those factors have a higher weight in your opinion? Do any, does any kind of factor? So for example, let's just say one partner, large sales team, but doesn't sell to the right yet, ICP. Is there one factor that, that outweighs the other, so to speak, when you're considering song? Yeah, really important question. So one thing I didn't mention that is, in my opinion, the most important thing is value creation through the partnership for your short shared customers. And this 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 applies to uh, agency to tech partnerships. It applies to agency to agency, but it certainly applies to tech to tech companies uh, when there's an integration involved. Meaning you could have a partner company who presents this massive amount of TAM, and you might even believe that your ability to capture it is pretty strong given XYZ considerations. But if the integration is so-so and it doesn't move the needle for your shared customers, it's not highly marketable, you're never going to get off the ground and you're going to waste an insane amount of resources. So that is by far the most important to me. And let's just assume that that's a check mark. It's like, yep, some serious value being created from two integrations coming or two companies coming together to form an integration. To be honest, the, the next thing for me is how many sales and success reps do they have? Like, I, I really do believe that that would be the second most important thing to me after uh, joint value creation. Um, that's more important to me than buyer persona overlap, ICP overlap, uh, partner program maturity. Because to be honest, if your partner has a lot of customer facing reps, they don't even need to have a partner program per se. You just need to get access to those reps to really evangelize those relationships. So that's that's my personal approach. So for those uh, integration partnerships, so let's say they uh, pass the SOM analysis, um, what is the first critical step that partner managers should take? So you mentioned, you know, if they have a large sales or CSM team, you can start evangelizing the, the relationships there. But what is that critical step? Let's say I am, you know, thrust into a new role and they say, we got these integrations or, you know, the product team says, hey, we just built this integration. And now you're trying to kind of backtrack as a partner manager to now action that, what is that critical step that a partner manager should take after an integration is built? Yeah, great question. And I, I remember I provided a quote for for Alloy. Um, they were doing a report on on this and they asked me, what's the biggest challenge for, for integration programs? And, you know, a big focus was you know, it's hard to get integrations built. That's the big bottleneck is just convincing your company or your partner's company. And of course, that's a significant challenge. But my slightly controversial comment was that's 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 tough. But I, what I find is, is even more challenging and to answer your, your question is what happens after an integration is built. And it's really driving adoption of it. Right. And so that's where I would start because you need to understand the value. Right. I see too often and I know because I, I made this mistake myself is you're like, great, new integration. You feel like that's like the green light to, to, to launch all of your go-to-market activities, these advanced enablement exercises with your partner reps. And then the smart reps on, on your partner companies are like, great, like, what's the value? And you're like, well, I mean, 
I mean, I just told you all the use cases, like, isn't that enough? And they're like, no, like, what's, where's the, where's the tangible value? Where's the data, the evidence that's our shared customers are benefiting by X, Y, Z when they use our integration. And then we're just, we're just standing there like, crap, we don't have that data. And you can't have that data unless you're driving usage and then actually analyzing those accounts. And so to answer your question explicitly, first step for some promising new integration is to really focus on driving adoption. And this is some tough love uh, for the tech partner managers uh, who might be listening where you're like, it's not my job to drive adoption. I'm only gold on closed revenue. Well, it's like, guess what? You can't drive revenue from your partners effectively until you have a value added integration. And you can't know that until you've driven installation, right? And I'm giving tough love because I was given that tough love because Lord knows I complained like, like heck to, to my previous managers for the same reason. But I eventually understood that there's dominoes that need to fall in order to really, you know, convert TAM into SOM. And that only happens when you have an integration that is being used and you understand that it's valuable. And I think it's interesting that you bring this up because I was talking to somebody about app marketplace listings the other day, like what should be included in that marketplace listing. And I think for me, the most impactful piece of collateral you can have in there is a joint case study, which is like an actual customer that's using the integration and the value proposition that they're getting from it. And to your point, Chris, like, if you're a good sales rep, the question I would ask is like, oh, can you tell me one of our customers that's using this integration? That would be my first question, right? And if you haven't got that, it's all nebulous at that point, really, to be totally honest. And so um, I love the point that you just made there. And, and like I said, this, this conversation I had, I said, you need to get a joint case study with real ROI in there and people will start to take notice. So I think that's a really, really, really great point. It's the, be- it's the holy grail of every integration partnership is a true joint customer case study centered around the integration. It's not just fluffy. Um, you're basically just reiterating what the use cases are and what the expected benefits are. It's like, no, it's like cold, hard cash in the bank for our shared customer. Here's how they use the integration. That's really important because it it lowers barriers for potential net new buyers, but it has as much data as possible. And again, you can't build something so powerful like this unless you have data around usage, um, hence the need to really uh, focus on that. And that requires really heavy collaboration with your customer success team and customer marketing team. So now that, uh, let's say we have that built, we have the joint story, we're getting some activity. Um, I know that when you and I have chatted before, you have good examples of rev share and when it works. And there's, I feel like even still some lack of knowledge around where rev share actually matters, where some people say it doesn't matter at all. Uh, you know, it's only for affiliates. That's really when they care about it. But yep. I know that you have an example of where that is the main source of value that you can give to your partner when there may be not this, you know, give and take that you could do equally. Tell us about when RevShare matters and uh, the example where it actually benefited the relationship and drove activity within the partnership. Yeah, really good question. So, you know, RevShare as it pertains to tech partner programs is, is certainly different than it is for agency partner programs. So the 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 preface there is look like for agency partner programs it's difficult oftentimes to send them leads back right and so if you're going to stand up that relationship and motivate them you're going to need to put some skin on the game and give them a percentage typically in perpetuity or on on a on a fixed year basis and so that's a main instrument for driving 
value to agency partners in tech, my approach has always been to avoid rev share relationships as much as possible. And my goal is just to commit to some equitable referral exchange, which isn't just, you know, I send you 10, you send me 10, right? It's really based on the metrics. So it's like, what's your average contract value? What's your average close rate? What's your goals? And so potentially I only need to send uh, a specific partner three reps or uh, three referrals that lead to sales accepted leads in a quarter. And maybe they need to send me 10 based on our, our goals and average contract value. So that's always been my approach. I think it can be a useful instrument even for technology partner programs when there is just a natural gravity or funnel for one company based on where they sit in a customer stack relative to the partners to send a high volume of leads organically, right? But it doesn't happen both ways, right? So meaning partner A can send partner B a lot of referrals based on where they sit in the tech stack selling to the same buyer persona, but it doesn't happen the other way around because you know, you don't want to just, you know, capture no value from that relationship if you're the side who's sending all of those leads. So put that partner on a, on a ref share agreement. We did, we did this with a, a few partners where this, this activity was happening this way. And what's great is, you know, ref share income that you get from partners, it, it should never be confused with revenue, like um, ARR or, or net new revenue. And I, I don't like when I see programs like boasting so heavily about like the rev share they're getting because at the end of the day, that just goes into your company bank account. It's not recurring revenue. It doesn't it contribute to your quotas or goals and it shouldn't. But the way I looked at it is like, it, once it started to become significant, I'm like, oh, okay, I can actually, you know, make the case with my finance leadership team. It's like, hey, look, like I just generated $250,000 in rev share income last year. Like that should contribute to my own personal department's P&L sheet. And I use that to justify strategic hires that I made, right? So one hire in particular I made, I was able to do because uh, I was able to offset their, their salary based on the, the rev share income I was getting. So yes, it's not a recurring revenue generator per se, but it can help stimulate partnership activities if you're able to start with that. And more importantly to me, I was able to justify um, hiring expenses because I was able to offset it with the income we were getting from, uh, from rev share. Yeah, I love the where they sit in the tech stack. Like the SaaS buying river is how I've always referred to it as like who comes upstream and downstream of you. And I love the piece of like, if it's a natural flow and you're always going to send leads over, then why shouldn't you get a decent a decent amount of, of revenue from there? So I love the way that you've kind of parceled then into a couple of boxes because my thinking is, is similar to yours in terms of technology partnerships, which is Rev share is not going to move the needle from either side. The leads are right, but you're going to convert into into closed opportunities. But I do love the concept of if there's a natural flow and they're always going to send us leads, well, then why wouldn't you, in addition, be able to to get revenue from that partnership? So I think that's a great uh, a great kind of concept for sure. Exactly. So where does uh, influence revenue sit in in all of this? Um, there's definitely been, I guess, this year especially. I feel like there's been more of a focus on sourced and people are saying you shouldn't care about influence but i know that uh you've dealt with this in the the past and it's provided you know actual value for the program so tell us your argument for influenced revenue yeah for sure this is a polarizing topic uh, that i can spend a whole session on so um to be clear i think influence should always be a primary consideration for partner programs meaning you should have some playbook, so to speak, on how to 
solicit influence from partners on key deals, get material influence, track that influence and understand it. Um, I'll start things off by saying I think program leaders need to be very careful about how they goal and comp and quota their their ICs, right? And I'm I don't think any one individual should own an entirely 100% influence goal because I think that doesn't motivate and incentivize the right behavior because what you're going to have is double counting happening, right? So you're going to have this partner manager is is, is gold on influence revenue um, and they're going to get paid bonuses, but then someone had to you know source that pipeline in the first place, they're getting bonused and then the sales reps have to close that deal and then they're getting bonused and so is the manager. So you can, you can quickly erode your margins when you're 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 paying out on top of funnel metrics, not just closed source revenue. So I'll say that, but I do think it has a huge place in you know really creating a productive partner program. I think it's particularly important for long, complex sales cycles that have big ACVs attached to them, right? So if you're an SMB, quick sales cycles, influence isn't as relevant because you could spend a lot of time getting material influence on a deal that maybe was already going to close anyway because it has a high close rate. It's a small deal amount. It's not really worth it. But if you start getting into the, you know, 25, 50, 100K million dollar deals that have, you know, three, six, 12 month deal cycles, inevitably, you're always going to need influence, at which point you certainly should have a very robust process for going and looking for the influence, getting the influence, tracking the influence, um, quoting and comping your your reps on it. I've seen some really cool models where, um, say, a, a partner manager has a goal of $100,000 of closed revenue in a given month or, or quarter, they can get up to 50% of that attributed to uh, influenced revenue, right? So maybe they got, they were able to influence 50K closing, and then the other 50K came from net new sourced revenue. So there's some flexible models you can do there. But I think the key is, is I would avoid making it a major contributor or the exclusive quota element for, uh, say, a partner manager, um, just because you don't want to incentivize, um, you know, behavior that isn't focused on sourcing net new business. Um, and I think for long, complex sales cycles, the big ACVs, it has a really important place. Yeah, and that this this speed point is a really interesting one because it's definitely like a not an argument, but definitely a a heated conversation I've had with VPs of sales before, whereby an AE has been engaged in a deal, a partner has come in mid stage, and maybe gave them an additional contact or an additional champion, which has helped the sales cycle along. But again, I think it's always difficult to explain to a VP of sales that, that did actually influence the sales cycle because their opinion is hey we're already engaged there we generated the lead and we ended up closing it right and so i don't know if you can talk to that a little bit yeah no it's that so that's what i I forgot to mention so thanks for that is is the most important thing you need to do is tracking things so certainly avoid putting any quotas on things until you actually understand what's going on so the real quick uh one of the last things I, i built out at gorgeous uh was our partner influence motion so we had a very specific playbook for sales reps to basically break glass in case of emergency when their deals were going dark. Um, I had a a junior partner manager on my team who would be alerted when a deal was um, flagged as needing help. They had a very specific process for going to find the right partners who could potentially help, engage, connect them with our sales rep, get the influence, track the influence, track it by type because we had different types of influence. And then after about four months, we had enough data where we're like, okay, we can say definitively um, that across this four month period that let's just say, uh, let's just say a hundred deals were flagged by sales reps as needing help. So for a hundred deals, they broke glass and said, Hey, we need help. 
for the deals that actually got help from a partner, so there were partner influence versus the deals who needed help but didn't get the the influence they needed, we had a 22% higher close rate on those at-risk deals that got the help they needed versus the ones that didn't, right? And so this was beautiful data that we were like, okay, now this is legit. Now we're very much incentivized to go continue doing this. And now with this type of data, you can factor it into, say, quotas, because based on this data, you'd be like, okay, influence revenue is equivalent to about 20% uh, closed ARR, right? So if, uh, say, say say a partner manager was able to successfully influence a 10K deal, perhaps they deserve 2K of it, because we understand now that influence is, is, is a, you know, equal to approximately 20% in terms of a close rate. So that's and, the need for data is so important. And, and I think you did something really smart there, which is you've actually got the rep to flag that they need help, right? And so there's actually, there's evidence there to say, hey, they told us they needed help on this deal. We provided the help. And so it does give you that kind of fallback data point to your point to 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 the point you made in terms of like we're not just we're not just making this up that we influenced the deal. Your rep request he provided the help and then it and then it helped them close. So I kind of love that as a as a as a tactic for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and as always, whenever you do cross functional things like this, uh getting influence, getting your partner reps to send leads, like we would turn it into case studies. Right. And so to be honest, like it was a slog to get this program off the ground. And then one time we had this, our, one of our star AEs, she was able to close this 50K deal, which is like 10X bigger than our average deal size, because one particular partner came through in the clutch and provided a ton of intel, ton of influence. And we closed this deal. And this person unsolicited, this AE, without even me being involved, goes into our company wins channel, makes this big post um, celebrating the deal closing and like highlighted you know, the junior PM on my team for, for offering such amazing influence. And all of a sudden, this is our case study, right? This is our internal case study. And all these eight years, like, what? Like, how can I get in on that action? How can I have partners help me with my deals? And like, it's one thing to hear from me telling AEs this, but when they see one of their peers, right, benefit from it, the FOMO just, you know, was, you know, took off. And so that was like the inflection point for us was just having our first big win that we could document and then evangelize the rest of the sales team on. That is amazing. And we've heard that multiple times um, on like the success stories in having these conversations on the podcast. Uh, I was just thinking while you were talking about that, I was like, that needs to be its own episode of how do you operationalize, you know, that breaking the glass and, you know, getting into the weeds of that. So uh, we will have an episode two on that. And that was a good like carrot to dangle as well for that story. Chris, take us home in, let's say um, one minute. What is your tactical tip that partner managers can implement tomorrow or you know the next day after listening to this? What is that tactical tip? It's going to be today. If you're listening to this, this, this advice needs to be implemented today. Um, but uh, yeah, two, two things. And, I, and I, I flirted with both of them during this, this, uh, this podcast. So one is redefining and shrinking your definition of a partner and really adopting this ruthless prioritization, right? Meaning don't be so liberal in giving up your calendar invites you know, really think critically about which partners deserve your t- time and attention and resources. You know, probably 20% of the companies you think are your partners that are in your portfolio are actually worth partnering with and, and focusing on. And you're going to have to have some tough conversations as your goals go up and you need to shrink your focus. Talking to these partners saying, hey, look, b- based on XYZ, based on, you know, the trends with our partnership not being as productive as we would like, and I, I take culpability there as well, I can't prioritize you and I really just can't work with you right now. 
but my goal is to get back to a place where we can, right? So you're going to have to have some tough conversations. Less is more. And then the other piece I also flirted with earlier was, you know, ICs, programs in general need to start thinking about enablement, not from the company perspective, like how can I enable this whole company? You need to think about it from an individual perspective, right? So again, who are those sellers? What is the ideal refer profile? So who are the roles and job titles within your partner organizations who can refer you into deals, right? And how can you ultimately earn your way into getting, you know, really exclusive access to these reps so you can evangelize them, establish these authentic one-on-one relationships. And their goal really with tech partners specifically, because they do have so many customers, is two to three champions per partner, right? So think about that. So you have 10, comp- 10 partner companies in your portfolio. If you can legitimately evangelize and get two to three champions per those companies, all of a sudden, you don't just have 10 companies referring you business. You have like 20 to 30 mini companies, which are these employees themselves who can refer you business consistently. And that's really all you need. That's an oversimplification, but start thinking about it from an individual basis and what enabling materials and resources and SPIF programs you need for those individual reps, not necessarily just uh, for the company as a whole. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for your wisdom. And like we talked about, we're going to have you on again. Love it.